You're listening to the Copenhagen Liberty Podcast by Cepos, an independent free market think tank based in Copenhagen. Continue listening for inspiring conversations with experts and thinkers about economics, politics and society. Your host is Cepos president Martin Overup. It is the 29th of November 2022 and today's guest is Roger Pilke Jr. He is professor of environmental studies at University of Colorado Boulder. And we will be talking about climate change and extreme weather events or disasters. Weather events don't that are extreme don't always turn into to disasters. We'll be discussing that as well. Can we expect them to get worse? Uh, will we get more of them, etc.? Um, let me first introduce Roger Pilkey. Um, um, he has had all kinds of fellowships, uh, including one at Oxford University's Set Business School. In 2012, Roger was awarded an honorary doctorate from Linköping, uh, Linköping University in Sweden. Um, and um, the Public Service Award of the Geological Society of America. In 2006, he received the Edward Brückner Prize in Munich, Germany for outstanding achievement in interdisciplinary climate research. His research interests are science and technology policy, technology and innovation policy, and, and this might be something that we can get some time to talk about at the end, governance of sports organizations, FIFA, etc. Now, there's something going on in Qatar right now that we might get to if we, let's see how it goes. Um, he's written several books, including The Rightful Place of Science, Disasters and Climate Change, Hurricanes, Their Nature and Impact on Society, and The Climate Fix, What Scientists and Politicians Won't Tell You About Global Warming. He has a substack, uh, which is kind of a blog, uh, and we will, of course, link to the books, to his website, to the substack, etc. Roger holds degrees in mathematics, public policy, and political science, for, uh, all from the University of Colorado. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, now, the um, sort of immediate interest concerning this issue of extreme weather is the COP27 meeting that has just finished, where there was a lot of debate about it. It was sort of the main topic of the event because the um, should we call it the developing countries were demanding compensation for uh climate uh, costs including extreme weather events so here in denmark there's been uh a lot of uh broadcasting there's been a lot of news stories about stuff that's been going on uh around the world so uh, we hear about uh flooding in pakistan we hear about droughts in, in different places in africa uh, and extreme weather events from all all around the world and the sort of general um, feel of the reporting it is, it is very much based on anecdotes, you know, the specific events, but the general feel of the reporting is that this has been getting worse. Uh, these events are uh, uh, out of the ordinary um, and we can expect it to get much worse in the future. What does, facts science say about that yeah first of all martin thanks for having me on the show and thanks for that very generous uh, introduction um the, the first place i would start on talking about extreme weather and climate change 
is to recognize that the category of extreme weather um, is a big, big bin. It includes a lot of different phenomena. And if we want to start making sense, um, we have to break things down into the into the parts. So, um, and I'm happy to talk about the various different extreme weather phenomena, whether it's hurricanes or flooding uh, or drought or tornadoes, um, because trends are not always the same across all phenomena. Um, the good news is, is that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, um, in its uh, sixth assessment report, which came out last year, did a really nice job of summarizing um, the state of the science with respect to trends in uh, various phenomena and offered projections for the future. And so, I mean, if you'd like, we can go through those or we can just have those come up in the conversation. Are you um, a contributor to the IPCC report? Uh, my work is cited in the IPCC, but I'm not an author. Okay. Yeah. So what you, your work on on uh, on weather, on climate? Uh, yeah, extreme uh, weather. weather. Actually, weather my, my, yeah. Um, I'm lucky because uh, parts of my research are cited in the all three working groups of the IPCC. So um, okay. good to have it recognized there. Yeah, it is. Sorry, I was interrupting. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, break it down for us then. Um, yeah. Where should we start? Flooding? Let's start with heat waves because heat waves, heat waves okay. are um, extreme heat um, is the, the one extreme weather phenomenon where uh, the IPCC offers the highest level of confidence that, um, yes, indeed, heat waves around the planet have been increasing. Um, and yes, uh, that increase can be attributed um, to uh, the release of greenhouse gases. Um, there's two kind of terms of art that the IPCC uses. Um, one is called detection. So uh, what they do is they look at the historical record of weather events and see if they can detect trends, um, increasing, decreasing over, over periods of, um, of many decades. Um, climate is not what happens today or tomorrow. Climate's measured over long periods of time. Right. Um, when, once the IPCC identifies trends, the next question is, well, why do we see those trends? Um, and that's the, that next step is called attribution. So heat waves have the strongest um, confidence in both detection and attribution. Um, so there has been an increase in heat waves and it can be attributed to uh, man-made climate change. Yeah, to, uh, and specifically to the emission of greenhouse gases yeah. um, from the burning of fossil fuels. Um, and that's, that's expressed with the highest level of confidence. Okay. So that is all around the world. In, in not everywhere, um, for instance, um, detection of trends in heat waves in North America, for instance, is complicated by the fact that the 1930s, uh, the, the Great Dust Bowl, had very extreme temperatures. So uh, heat waves in North America have increased since the 1960s. But if you include the 1930s in your historical record, um, th there hasn't been uh, an increase over that longer time period. So again, it's it's over most of the world, but the details really matter when you get into the, uh, the you know the nuts and bolts of the science. Okay, so what is the argument for not taking the trends as far back as you have data? That's what I would normally think you should do. So I would not start in the sixties if the, if we have data back to the nineteen thirties. Yeah, and I mean, this is an issue that that will come up with uh, all extreme phenomena, all extreme weather phenomena. 
Um, take, you know, hurricanes, for example. Um, there's good records um, in the North Atlantic, uh, particularly for landfalling storms that go back to 1900 or before. Um, aircraft reconnaissance of storms dates to the 1940s, satellite measurements to the 1960s, and technologies have continuously uh, improved. So it is a very important question to ask whenever you see a time series of extreme weather, when does that data actually start? And uh, and there are good reasons to use uh, subsets of data, for example, if you have a much higher quality observational record. Um, so it's not, it's not always straightforward. Um, and and this leads to, I mean, if, if you get different trends starting in different dates, that tells you something about the variability of climate over those long time periods. Yeah. Well, I, I can, it, I, I guess it makes sense that if, if data quality gets worse uh, as you go back in time, and usually it does, right. uh, then you shouldn't include. So, so, so is data quality for the 1930s worse in the U.S.? In the United States, it, on, it's on, heat, on heat waves. Yeah, in the United States, it's generally understood that the the measures of um, heat waves uh, in the 1930s are are accurate. I mean, it was it was a, quite an extreme decade okay. Uh, okay. for temperatures. So that and and that is um, you know, contested in the literature as to exactly you know whether there was human causes to um, the heat waves of the 1930s due to agriculture um, and and changing the land surface. Um, the the expectation of scientists today is that the increase in heat waves from the 1960s um, is is likely to be attributable to greenhouse gas forcing. Okay. Uh, and anyway, that's just the U.S. So even if there's some doubt about the U.S., you know, where, where do you start? The 1960s and 1930s. Right. Still on a global level, this is where where you you have um, uh, you have a clear detection and attribution. From the Precisely. IPCC. Yes, exactly. Now, um, how big a problem is that? Well, heat waves um, are important for a number of reasons. Um, they they cause human impacts. Um, they stress the human body. Um, they also lead to greater demand for energy. Um, when it's hot, uh, people want air conditioning. Right. And uh, in in most of Europe, air conditioning um, is not necessary. Um, in much of the United States, it is, um, and the United States has something like a um, prevalence of air conditioning that covers about 90% of the population. Um, compare that to India, um, where presently it's about 5%. So as as the world gets continues to get warmer, and the projections are that there will be more frequent heat waves, there will be greater demands mm. for um for energy services to provide cooler air for people. Um, there's impacts on uh, ecosystems, on agriculture, on species. So um, when things, you know, the projections are when things get warmer and heat waves become uh, more prevalent, it is uh, generally <laughs> thought to be a pretty negative impact uh, in the future. And for, for society, it's something that um, with appropriate levels of wealth and, and technological deployment, um, we do pretty well. Um, people live in Phoenix, Arizona, and they live in Dubai. Um, the The challenge uh, is, however, to ensure that people all around the world have access to those technologies. Okay, so it's it's a wealth, uh, technology, and resilience uh, problem in in a way. To, to the to the extent that heat waves can cause disasters, 
so uh, a heat wave can be a nuisance uh, for some people on the beach. It might be nice, uh, but but uh, generally speaking, for people, it can be a nuisance. And when does it turn into a big problem? That's when you have uh, a poor society without the technology to deal with the heat. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, this is going to be a recurring theme in our conversation: is that that an extreme weather or climate event need not become a disaster um, if we are appropriately adapted and prepared for um, oh. events. One of the yeah. challenges with with a changing climate is that places which did not experience um, extremes uh, in the past um, are starting to experience extremes. So take the Pacific Northwest in North America, very extreme heat wave or um, take you know, much of Europe uh, over this past summer. Um, if societies aren't adequately prepared, then that that is indeed the situation where an extreme event can turn into a disaster. Mm. Okay, so um, what should we take next? Next, all right, let's go to heavy precipitation because that that's heavy a lot of rain. That's a lot of rain. Right. Um, could be snow, um, could be sleet. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> heavy precipitation. Um, the IPCC does a very nice job in its latest report. Um, explaining that heavy precipitation is not the same thing as flooding. So where I live um, in Boulder, Colorado, um, if it were to rain today, it would be rare since it's the end of November, but if it were to rain, it wouldn't take very much to be classified as heavy precipitation because um, there's the statistics are that uh, even a little bit of rain would be an extreme event. So, Flooding depends upon uh, things like soil moisture conditions, runoff, how much pavement there is, um, all sorts of things that are, are far more complicated than just heavy precipitation. Um, the IPCC has less confidence in changes in heavy precipitation than it does in heat waves, but it's still pretty confident that uh, heavy precipitation in many locations around the world um, has, has been detected. Um, and, been, and it can be a, the increase can be attributed to uh, greenhouse gas forcing. So heavy precipitation is is right after heat waves in terms of um, the detection and attribution confidence levels of the IPCC. And so there there was um, the flooding is is sometimes caused by heavy precipitation. Sometimes it's caused by uh, winds pushing water from the ocean uh onto land or preventing water cup from rivers running off that's how i understand it uh the, the stuff we've been seeing in pakistan what uh what caused that yeah so that's that's riverine flooding so the 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 two types of flooding you described um one is uh, associated with uh rivers that exceed their their channel and overflow um and the other is associated with storm surges um that uh, accompany um, often tropical cyclones, but extra tropical cyclones also push water up on, on shore. I generally tend to separate out discussions of riverine flooding from tropical cyclone flooding, which we could talk about in terms of hurricanes. Yeah. Um, Pakistan's flooding uh, was associated with uh, in, in enormous amounts of rain um, that fell over a, a series of um, of multiple days. Um, in precipitation measurements, they're measured in different ways. So you can have an, a one hour rainfall, or you can have a, mm. a, you know, a five, pick your number, a two day rainfall, a five day rainfall. And in Pakistan, 
um, the studies that I've seen that have emerged so far um, focus on on what's called five day rainfall. So just rain on top of rain on top of rain. It's it's similar to what we're seeing in Australia uh, these past months, where uh, there's a, a series of um, weather conditions that lead to nonstop rain that that then contributes to the massive flooding. Okay, so tell me again, what is the IPCC saying about heavy rainfall? Um, that it's well, uh, heavy rainfall has increased in, in many places around the world. Yeah, and it's been detected as an yep. increase, and uh, it can be attributed um, to human greenhouse gas forcing, um, but with less confidence than heat waves. So um, the the IPCC is expresses its confidence levels, um, and it, they express about a sixty six percent confidence. Um, in in detection of the changes in extreme precipitation. Okay, so the argument for more rain is that when it gets warmer, the air can hold more water, and then more rain will exactly. fall from the sky exactly. when when, exactly. when that happens. Right, um, and that goes and that goes for overall precipitation in addition to the most extreme. Yeah, yeah, okay. So. Um, When we look at the um, at, at these events, um, it, it has has damages from uh, flooding uh, of, or from heavy pre precipitation gone up? Is it is it a, a, a what, what, you, yeah. you've been you've been studying that? Uh, yeah. What 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 is what does the data say about that? Yeah, I mean it's really interesting because um, the the IPCC expresses with some some degree of confidence that heavy precipitation has increased uh, but the ipcc is is equivocal on flooding so the ipcc does not detect at the global scale um, upwards trends in 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 floods um, some regions have seen increases some have seen decreases um, but uh, there is no uh, claim to attribution for flooding so mm. uh, one of the i mean one of the 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 unheralded success stories of um, global disaster response is that as uh, society has developed and become wealthier, um, damage uh, associated with all sorts of events, flooding included, um, has increased in absolute terms. Um, there's more people, there's more property, there's more wealth. But as a proportion of the global economy, um, disaster losses have decreased. Um, and just to take one example, the United States, um, since 1940, uh, flood damage has gone down by about 75% as a proportion of GDP. Um, and that's good news. That means that less of our societal resources are being spent on uh, recovering from those disasters. Yes. And and, and obviously, that's very important. Uh, if people lose... Uh... It's it's not the amount that people lose; it's the share of their income. So if they're twice as rich and they're losing the same amount, it's half as bad. It's yeah, yeah. Actually, I mean, less it. than less than half as bad. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, But you you, you, you so get my general yeah, yeah. I mean, meaning. that's I mean that's a very important point because yeah. often in media discussions, um, the focus is on the absolute amount. I mean, in the United States, there's a popular statistic called billion dollar disasters. Mm. Um, and you know, the reality is that on, on planet earth, there was never a billion dollar weather disaster until the 1960s, no. um, because we weren't wealthy enough to lose a billion dollars. 
Now, so they correct for inflation, I assume, but they don't correct for wealth growth. They don't correct for changing wealth and more people, more stuff in harm's way. So Not it's even very, more people. Be very um, misleading to look yeah. only at absolute numbers. Yeah. 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 So uh, I think that that's probably, uh, I knew this. I'm, <laughs> I've, I've looked at your, I've read your yeah. stuff. So, um, but to many people, uh, that will be counterintuitive because what you see in the media uh, tends to indicate that flooding, uh, there's a lot more of it going on. It's it's on the news all the time now. It didn't used to be. So yeah. what what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there is, I mean, it's part of the, it's part of the times, the zeitgeist, the, the, the sense um, of people's expectations that um, if you see a disaster reported somewhere in the world, and I mean, let's face it, it's a lot easier for all of us to be present virtually um, elsewhere in the world when a disaster occurs. And it's, it, I'm sure it is true. Um, it's true for me, and I'm sure it's true for most people that we are much more aware of flooding in Pakistan or um, in in Sub-Saharan Africa or places in India where maybe um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it would have been on page 23 of a newspaper that you read. Um, and also it's much more, much more visceral now because um, we have video. I mean, mm -hmm. we see the flood torrents coming down the canyon in Pakistan and it's, it's emotive. Um, but none of that is a substitute for actual data and evidence. Um, and so, you know, climate data is important if we really want to understand these trends um, it's not enough to look at the newspaper or or get a feeling. It, you, you actually have to go into the numbers. Okay. So in money terms, uh, the costs of flooding uh, has gone down. Uh, yeah. What about lives lost? Lives lost. Um, this is also a, another great success story. Um, if you look glo globally, um, for all disasters, so include earthquakes or just the subset that's weather and climate disasters. But should we include um, earthquakes? That's not a climate. Uh, no, I mean it doesn't disaster. matter if you include it or not. The, the oh, story okay. is the same. The, the 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 number of people in absolute terms and also the proportion of people um, who die in extreme weather events has gone down dramatically. Um, over a hundred years, it's something like ninety nine point nine percent decline. It's it's massive. Um, the in, last in, in share or or in numbers, total numbers, total numbers. Wow, it's remarkable. It, I mean, the with, last... a, with a population that's uh, that's gone up uh, from I don't know, it's quadrupled or something like that. Yeah, yeah, from uh, less uh, than two billion to yeah. more than eight billion. Yeah. Um, I mean, the last several years um, have been remarkable. I mean, people still die in disasters, and it's a tragedy. Yeah. Um, but it was routine in the 1960s for tens of thousands of people to die in a single flood event, say in Bangladesh or, or India. Um, the, the yeah, last I, I, looked at, I looked at Pakistan. Yeah. There was one in 1965 or something like yeah. that, uh, where 10,000 people died. Yeah. Uh, that was, a, w w was that cyclone related or was that, uh, was that fl uh, precipitation flooding? Yeah. My, I, I think I know the same uh, event you saw from the uh, Pakistan history. And I think that was a similar flooding event to the one okay. we just experienced. Yeah. So why do less people die now? Less people die now for several reasons. Um, one is 
globally, there's much better infrastructure. So people are, are more protected from events. Um, and another really important factor is the expansion of forecasts and warnings. Okay. Um, what, let me just stop you. What yeah. kind of infrastructure are we talking about? I mean, if there's a flood, how, how does infrastructure help you? The road is being... Uh, yeah. If so, if if you need to get away from a coastline uh, yeah, yeah. or okay. out of a river, you'll yeah. have roads, you'll have access right. to buses or, or vehicles to, to transport you out of the danger zone. Could it also be structures that are flood resistant? Yes. Um, it could be uh, places where people go um, to to you know, get out of the storm surge zone, so they're higher up, right. um, perhaps in a concrete structure. Um, there's also better care uh, available for many people in the aftermath of a disaster. Um, a lot of times, uh, historically, people die not because of the strong winds or the deep water, um, but because of disease and, and things that happen in the immediate I aftermath know. of, of course, an event. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, for me, it's one of the, the unheralded science and policy success stories of the, mm. of the 20th century and early 21st is, is how, um, how much progress has been made. There's still more, more to do, obviously, but um, it's, it's a good news story. Mm. Um, it's, the odds of any, any one of us perishing in an extreme weather event today is, is as low as it's ever been in human history. Okay. Is that true for hurricanes as well? Same, same for hurricanes. Um, hurricanes have the advantage, um, tropical cyclones, is that they're big and we can see them from space. Um, they're, you know, you, you go back, you know, more than 100 years in the United States, uh, Galveston hurricane in 1900 uh, came ashore as a complete surprise. And then, you know, more than 10,000 people died. Um, it wasn't so long ago that storms would surprise uh, people in the Indian Ocean Basin. Um, today, we see it. We see everything, um, and so storms are, are are well forecast with plenty of advance warning given to people to to get out of harm's way. The, it, you know, I'll tell you when I got aware of this way of thinking about uh, extreme weather events. That was when somebody, a guy from India, told me about the terrible cyclone that hit Bangladesh in 1970. Yeah. It was called, I've got it somewhere here, um, the Bola Cyclone, 1970, or the Great Cyclone. And um, it hit uh, what was then called East Pakistan, uh, which is confusing because Pakistan is on the other side of India. Uh, uh, that's that's present-day Bangladesh. Um, and it killed at least 300,000 people, 300,000 people. And um, and then he said, he told me about that. And then he said, uh, a few years ago, there was a, a very similar cyclone, did exactly the same thing. And it killed, it was, it was still terrible, killed a few thousand, but, but it was like a thousand people or something like that, that died. It's terrible, you know, but it wasn't right. 300,000 people. Right. And I said, what has happened is that we have early warning now. So we have the satellites and we have, uh, you know, governance where people are actually getting warned and people then have been told what to do. They know what to do. And what they do is uh, they they get into high ground uh, and wait it out. And then they return back and and, and they're safe. And if yeah. we didn't do that, hundreds of thousands would have died this time around as well. They didn't. Yeah. So so that's, I mean, and I thought, wow, that's, that is so much more important 
I'm, I'm not saying it's not important to to sort of avoid climate change and more climate and, and, and more extreme weather events, but this is just so much more important than avoiding one extra storm by not emitting carbon. You yeah, and, you know, you know what I mean? is, yeah, I mean, for me, it's better adaptation and preparation for extreme weather um, is, is really on, a, on an independent policy track than mitigation and greenhouse gas reduction. Um, and, you know, tropical cyclones, flooding, drought um, has been around. And if there's going to be more of those events going forward, as some projections have it, then our preparations are that much more important. But at the same time, um, we can, you know, we can, as we say in English, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything about right, it. Right. I'm just saying, you know, what are the costs of climate change? You have to yeah, be yeah. a little bit careful. Uh, if, you, if you're saying, if you have some country that is very poorly prepared for a, right. uh, a climate disaster, uh, then it happens. And then you go, oh, that's a cost of climate change. No, that is that is a cost of poor governance. Right. Right. And there and, are still people, you know, hundreds of millions of people around the world who um, don't have access to to good weather warnings still. So there's a lot of work that is to be done. I mean, the, the good news is there's still a lot of progress that can be made. Um, and, and, you know, I think the trend in uh, the reduction in loss of life can continue um, into the future. It's 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 a good news story, actually. So with good governance, even with climate change, the, the trend towards fewer people dying will continue. Um, the, as as it, the key there could be expected is, to continue. Let's put yeah, it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. The, the key there is, you know, the first thing you said is, you know, with good governance, um, it's the sort of thing that that we can't um, get lazy or think that the job is done uh, because it's not. Uh, it, it requires constant attention. Um, I mean, in in just in Florida this year with Hurricane Ian. Um, more than a hundred people died. Many of them just simply refused to evacuate. Um, and so there are, you know, at, at some point it gets down to um, human behavior and willingness to um, not take risks. Um, and so there's a lot more to understand about how to, you know, keep pushing those numbers down. Yeah. So um, there's some some of the stuff that I find disturbing about the reporting about this is that I noticed, and this is on Danish media, so you you, ha you haven't been watching it, but I'm, I'm just telling you the story. You might find it in interesting. Uh, there, in, on Danish media, there's been a lot of reporting up and up until and, and during COP27, where they've been looking at specific weather events around the world. And I noticed a thing, and that is when it's in Africa or Latin America. Uh, or Asia, the reporting is about this terrible climate thing that happened and people are completely, I mean, they're victims of this thing and there's nothing that can be done about it. It's just the way it is. And it's our fault. It's because we've emitted carbon, which, you know, it is to, to an extent, there's a truth in that. But uh, it's also a, a, a dangerous kind of reporting if, if, if local, if governments there sort of, buy into that story and say, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's because of the West, it's because of uh, capitalism or whatever. It's, it's all these nasty right. people doing this and it's not our fault. We couldn't have done right. any, anything about it. That's wrong and that's right. dangerous and that would be terrible to, to reach that conclusion. Now, fast forward to when they got to uh, um, dealing with the 
uh, disaster in uh, Germany, which was a precipitation disaster. I was in Paris when that rain came uh, yep. through Paris, and boy, was there a lot of rain. Uh, and then uh, a, a day or two later, we heard about the disaster in Germany. Uh, and the interesting thing is, when reporting about that, it was mentioned that there had been uh, mistakes done by the government and more people could have been saved if they'd had better <laughs> early warning systems, etc. So. So it's interesting. When it gets closer to home, we start assuming that governments can do things and that we can, uh, what is you, you call it, disaster preparation or what's, what's the word? Um, uh, disaster risk reduction uh, or disaster Disaster response. Disaster yeah. response, I think was the word yeah. we used. Um, uh, so so there's, there's this idea that all those people in developing countries, things just happen to them and, and, and they are powerless to do anything themselves. But we here in, in Germany or Denmark or Europe or the West, uh, we can do all sorts of things. And if things go wrong, we should look at the government and criticize them and evaluate and find out how we can do it better next time. Am I? Is this just an observation? Or is there some truth to this? Yeah, I mean, I sense I think there's some truth to that in 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 stereotypes and how. I mean, for for a lot of the media reporting disasters, um, this may be a little unfair, but I don't think it's terribly unfair. Disasters are 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 interesting because they illustrate the importance of climate change. They're not interesting because they're events in and of themselves that are deserving of a policy response. Um, you know, one of the frustrations I see is when I see. Uh, you know, stories about the Pakistan floods or flooding in Australia or a bushfire or um, you name the phenomenon. Um, the headlines usually the first thing that's talked about is climate change and connections um, and not the fact that um, a lot of times we build houses and, and cities in places that are prone uh, to to being flooded out or we build in forests that uh, we know will burn. So there's there's. Um, there's a lot of room, I think, for a much broader discussion of, of disasters. And, and climate obviously is important, but it's not the only story out there. Okay. We didn't get around the, the actual trend concerning hurricanes and uh, cyclones. What, what is the difference? Yeah, well, tropical cyclones is the, the, the general name for the, the phenomenon, the storm uh, on planet Earth. Okay. And um, hurricanes are the name of these storms uh, in the North Atlantic uh, in the uh, Western Pacific, Eastern, sorry, Eastern Pacific off the coast of Mexico. But they're also cyclones. Yes, they're all you, tropical you, cyclones. You, you just yeah, call and, them hurricanes. And overall, the IPCC um, is, is again, just like flooding, very equivocal, both on the number of storms uh, changing um, and the intensity, the strength of the storms. Um, there is some, some early indications that uh, rainfall associated with tropical cyclones may may be increasing, which uh, would be consistent with the heavy precipitation trends. Um, and of course, sea level rise uh, makes uh, coastal locations um, more vulnerable uh, to tropical storm, uh, tropical cyclone storm surge. Uh, but if you take a look at damage from tropical cyclones worldwide, um, again, there's not. Uh, there's not evidence of a of a strong climate signal in that damage record yet. Uh, maybe of there a strong will be climate signal or of a uh, of a climate signal of any climate signal at all. Um, it would have to be a strong climate signal in order to see it because of the uncertainties and how the data is collected. Um, so if if storms change in frequency or intensity or rainfall levels by a few percentages, um, it's going to be impossible to see that in the 
in the data record, uh, you need big changes in their events in order to see that in the losses. Because there's so much fluctuation going on anyway. Uh, th there was a, a, a hurricane, I don't know if that's the right word to use, but a hurricane drought uh, yeah. for a, a, a lo very long period of time. When was this in, in the From US? 2005 to 2017, uh, it's the longest period on record where the United States was not hit by a major hurricane. Okay, so there uh, were hurricanes uh, out of the ocean, but they didn't right. hit land. Right. right. And uh, I often, I mean, I come across students and young people um, you know, whose, whose formative years were in that period. And, and they say quite correctly, yeah. you know, when I was growing up, we didn't used to have hurricanes. Yeah, but then, but then you can say when, when I was growing up, we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, okay. this is why experience is not a good substitute for data when it comes to climate <laughs> phenomena. That's, that's true. So it's because of that, um, what would you call that um, coincidental fluctuation yeah it's i mean the the tropical cyclone behavior is highly variable yeah. and so teasing out you know detecting a trend um to use the ipcc language um can be quite difficult because the trend has to be fairly large to rise out of that you know what's called noise of natural variability yeah um so it's 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 um you know, I, I, for a long time i said that you know one of the worst places to look for a signal of climate change is hurricanes um, there are very few of them that occur, mm -hmm. and um, the data record isn't particularly long in many places around the world. And the large amount of variability we see means that seeing subtle signals um, will be difficult. Yeah. Um, it so, for, mean so, that, for, so for hurricanes in, 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 in the U.S., uh, you really need satellite data to have uh, knowledge about all the hurricanes not just the ones that hit land, because right. back in the day, how would you know if there was a hurricane out of the ocean? Yeah. Some yeah. So sailor might data. have noticed, but it even, did he even report it in? There's good global data um, that we've used in our research that goes back to 1970. Um, it obviously gets better over time with more sophisticated sensors and ability to see. But in some places, um, like the Atlantic or the Western North Pacific, um, the data goes back further in time. Um, so. Um, there's a lot that can be said about hurricane trends, and I think the IPCC is 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 pretty consistent with the World Meteorological Organization and others who have assessed mm. the literature. It's, right. um, we haven't detected or attributed hurricanes, despite what people might read in the newspaper. It hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I think that surprises a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, hurricanes so, have so been... no no trend in hurricanes in the in in the U.S. What about globally? Uh, globally, over the period of record, there has been no trend overall in the number of hurricanes um, or in the number of intense hurricanes. Okay. So, um, and I tell people, if you if you want trends, um, just tell me what trend you want, and I can find you a starting date in the historical record mm. and provide you an uptrend or a yeah. downtrend. Uh, and that's one reason why the IPCC is equivocal, because there's um, there's not evidence of a secular long term trend in intensity or frequency. Right. Right. And it's Important to point out, this is not something you're saying. Uh, it's not just something you're saying. After all, you're an expert on this and, and you're quoted by the IPCC, but it's also the IPCC's conclusion. So, so, so you, you, you're, not, you're not referring to uh, some, some uh, dissenting view here. It's, it's actually the mainstream view of the IPCC that you're referring to. Yes. The, I mean, the work, I mean, I'm, fortunate the work that I've done and with many colleagues around the world 
um, is perfectly in line with the IPCC consensus on this topic. Yes, yes. Um, and the IPCC I relies see. on um, other assessments by the World Meteorological Organization. So there, this is this is a pretty strong conclusion supported by a lot of science that is routinely ignored in, in media and popular discussions. Um, I get it. I understand. Hurricanes are very photogenic. Um, and, and, you know, they're appealing um, when they occur to associate with climate. But the, the science just isn't there yet. Mm, right. So what would we expect? So the, the projections. So if you take a look um There's a, a nice paper done by a uh, NOAA scientist named Tom uh, Knudsen and colleagues, and they looked at different modeling studies, um, something, you know, a couple dozen climate models, um, the last several generations of climate models. And there's a, a huge spread um, over what's projected um, for a hurricane, both frequency and intensity going forward. Um, And it, there's also been what's called expert elicitations of different experts to see what they think will happen. And again, a large spread. It, it's been simplified in kind of the general discussion that the, the kind of the center of gravity, if you can call it that, of the models is that we may see fewer overall tropical cyclones on planet Earth, um, but maybe a larger proportion of them will be um, the most intense hurricanes. Uh, and there is an expectation also that rainfall from tropical cyclones will increase, uh, which would increase the chance of flooding. Um, and sea level rise is expected to continue to increase you know, for decades, if not centuries. Har du overvejet at anbefale samfundstanker og bag om nyheden til folk i dit netværk? Det kan du gøre ved at dele på Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn og andre sociale medier. Så hjælper du andre med at finde podcasten. Du kan dele dine favoritafsnit fra din podcast-app, fra YouTube, eller du kan finde links til podcasten på Cepos hjemmeside og dele derfra. Du er meget velkommen til at tagge mig, når du deler. This, um, these observations about what the difference between extreme weather and, dis and disasters, I, th I think maybe that's at the core of some of the results concerning the costs of climate change. Now, um, maybe yeah. we should maybe we should stress both you and I believe that <laughs> you know, humans are humans emitting carbon dioxide, burning fossil fuels, emitting carbon dioxide affects climate, causes climate change, and climate change has costs, real costs, absolutely, and and and, and severe costs, and it's yeah. problematic. But some of the disaster rhetoric. Um, including at this uh, cop where and you know president uh, biden and, and different people use phrases that sort of indicate that this could cause the end of civilization or uh, kill off the earth or mankind or whatever i mean that is not what the ipcc concludes and in fact when you look at bill nordhaus's work and and, and others they say well you know a uh, temperature increase of a couple of degrees or three degrees Celsius could uh, induce costs of a, a few percentage points of GDP. And a lot of people uh, react by saying that can't be right. It's, it, it, that, that, that's an absurdity. It, this is a huge problem and it's, it's going to be very, very costly uh, to us. And uh, I, I think this story about how we can mitigate or adapt to uh, 
changing um, climate conditions, more extreme weather events is is part of the explanation why uh, it may not be that serious. Yeah, I mean, I, you make a big and important point here is is that what the IPCC says and it's you know it's massive series of reports and how that science eventually gets um, represented in public discussions by the head of the United Nations or by President Biden um, can be very different things. Um, there's there you can search uh, the IPCC reports and you will not find the phrase existential threat. Um, you won't find code red for humanity. Um, you won't find apocalypse. Um, no. So, so the IPCC, but, and that's is, not an argument for not having climate policy for not exactly, uh, exactly. Uh, get, you know having a transition from fossil right. fuels, which also impose other problems like uh, uh, sulfur dioxide uh, pollution, etc. Absolutely, uh, but 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 we, we we need to be able to have a frank discussion about the the size of the problem. So in a lot of so I obviously have had a lot of discussions of these issues over the years. And and I think there is I think there's a lot of agreement on the underlying science. There are differences in how people um, view theories of change, how how the how the world will change. Right. Um, I, I've been advocating mitigation policies you know, for 30 years. Um, but just for the one Danish listener, what is mitigation? Yeah, mitigation refers to. Um, the, the reduction of emissions from the burning of fossil fuel, which if we want to get to zero, means eliminating the burning of fossil fuels right. um, or capturing all the carbon dioxide that, that's released when we do so. Um, the challenge of mitigation is huge, um, yeah. given the size of the energy system um, globally, but it's important. As you say, it's very important to do yes. this uh, for climate change, but also particulate air pollution, um, you know, blowing up mountaintops to get coal. Um, we see the energy security issues in Europe of reliance on fossil fuels from from authoritarian an authoritarian state. Um, so part of that has been caused by maybe a um, too optimistic uh, move towards um, wind and solar. It could be argued. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's an interesting debate out there. So Xi Jinping in China has said that China is fully supportive of decarbonization, but they're not going to give up fossil fuels until the alternatives are ready to be plugged in. Um, and so um, the, in the West, in Europe, and in the United States in particular, um, a different approach has been taken, which is to limit supply um, and hope that that forces alternatives to the market faster. Um, that comes with some challenges for security and so on. There's there's no easy, no easy answer to those questions, but... Um, it is a massive challenge and it's one well worth taking on. Yeah. So um, to get back to, to this, the cost of, of, yep. of, of climate change, um, you can actually have a situation where you get more extreme weather events, uh, but fewer disasters, more yeah, extreme weather and, and, but people suffering less from it because they get air conditioning, uh, they they get the global disaster responses that are better than what we have now. I'm pretty sure the Germans will be more ready next time. Something like the precipitation uh, disaster that that happened uh, recently, uh, or a couple of years ago, uh, happens again. Yeah, almost a hundred years ago, uh, Gilbert White, who was the 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 grandfather of flood policy in the United States, 
had a saying. He said at the time, he said, floods are an act of God and flood disasters are an act of people. And and the point there is that, well that yeah, we, we make the conditions that lead to disasters, which means we can make those conditions better or worse. Um, yeah. And we're not helpless. And I think that's an, that's also a very important message is we have agency. Um, but this gets to, you know, the idea that that people need to be scared or made to think that disasters are, are you know, going to skyrocket as a basis for encouraging mitigation policy. Um, once you realize that that mitigation policy takes many decades, uh, maybe most of this century, um, you very quickly realize that you can't keep people scared for decades and part of a century. Um, we can we can tackle mitigation and we can improve um, preparation for extreme events at the same time. Um, and I think it's a very positive message. It's not one of mm-hmm. fear or, or you know, apocalyse. So framing this as a climate crisis, suggests that uh, we're dealing with this right now and in a few years we will have dealt with it and we will have moved on to something else and what you're saying is no no this is i mean this transition from a fossil fuel based economy to one based on something else that's going to take maybe 50 years yeah if not longer it's i mean it's a lot it's a lot like feeding the planet or improving public health outcomes worldwide um we need to make continual progress over many, many decades yeah. to see results. It's 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 not a crisis that we will say, okay, we've solved that. Let's let's move on to the next thing. Yeah. It, it'll be and, with us. And, and and to be in crisis mode is a bit like trying to run a marathon by by sprinting. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. Yeah. Um, and and you can see that some places in public opinion uh, right now in Denmark uh, uh, that. I don't know. It's early days, and so maybe maybe it's just a small fluctuation. But young people are less concerned about climate right now than they were last year, and uh, you know maybe they they there's also um, a sort of sense of you get fed up. Yeah. Um, well, there's a strong. You want to talk about something else? Yeah. Well, there's a strong correlation in many parts of the world between the prices of of energy. Um, in the United States, it's gasoline, since there's a a heavy reliance on the automobile um, and people's views of, of climate policy. Um, So, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation because we have to balance security, economics, the environment all all at the same time. And the pressures may be pointing in different directions. So, Mm. so figuring out how to do that is, is, you know, it is the challenge of the 21st century. Yeah. Well, most economists are saying, uh, put a price on carbon and uh, yeah. let the markets uh, deal with it. But of course, I, I've been wondering, and I've actually spoken to uh, very concerned climate scientists in Denmark who who uh, agree with me, at least when the mic is off, that uh, it is a problem that we get this disaster rhetoric about it because... Uh, you know, as one of them said, uh, what these people saying that we have 12 years uh, to deal with this and what do they expect will happen in year 13? I mean, what what are young people today going to say in in 15 years when they realize that the world is fine? And uh, uh, yeah, this is life this goes is a, on. Yeah, this is a political problem with, you know, the targets and timetables approach. Um, I mean, the the 12-year claim that that you cite there 
um, was popularized in 2018. Yeah. We're about to turn the page to 2023. um, And, you know, people are still pointing to, um, you know, 2030, uh, 50% reduction, the 1.5 degree temperature target. And it looks, you know, exceedingly likely that the world's going to exceed that temperature target. Um, and at some point, we have to realize, um, you know, this is this is a challenge that requires sustained incremental progress year after year after year after year. Um, deadlineism is is not a good way to motivate the, those sort of changes. No, what should be done instead? I think we need to. So a lot of attention is paid to temperature targets and emissions. Um, for me. The action should be focused on fossil fuels directly. So the, the burning of fossil fuels produces carbon dioxide from the burning of coal and the burning of petroleum and the burning of natural gas. Um, the world has already shown that that um, large parts of it can exist without coal. Um, it requires some hard conversations about things like nuclear energy, um, about replacing coal with natural gas. Um, but I would love to see uh, a globally negotiated coal exit treaty. Um, sort of like what, what Germany has has put in place. Um, the United States uh, conceivably could be out of the coal business in the early 2030s. Um, getting off of petroleum is going to be a lot more difficult. Um, we can replace uh, some of the transport with electric cars, um, but the petrochemical industry turns out to be really important for pretty much all sorts of things in modern society. Um, jet fuel is going to be tough. Um, and then the really difficult one is is natural gas um, and how the world um, mm. will will get off natural gas and if it can't um, to come up with technologies of carbon capture and storage. But we need to talk more directly about the sources of the problem, not the consequences. Emissions mm. are a consequence of burning. Um, we need we need to start upstream and talk about fossil fuels. Okay, I'd I'd express a um, a bit of a disagreement with you there. Um, you know, if carbon capture and storage uh, is a technology that um, at, at some point becomes cheap enough, then what's the reason for getting rid of coal? I mean, couldn't we perceivably see a future that is carbon neutral, but still includes fossil fuels and even coal? And if you have coal power plants that, that uh, you know, uh, clean the smokestacks, then uh, they're actually quite clean and efficient. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, I'm a I'm a policy pragmatist, and, and so one of the reasons I I support nuclear power is because it exists. Um, France France is a country I can go there. I can turn I'm, the lights. I'm not up. saying anything against nuclear power. I'm just saying no, why, no. What, but, but why carbon have capture a... technology does not exist. So so if it did and it was scalable at low cost, you know that argument would have a lot more merit. Um, those technologies don't exist at present. And I agree. The, yes, the world the world's not investing, but in but that. coal, but phasing out coal, how long would that take globally? I mean, I I said fifty years, and you about fossil fuels, and you said probably even longer. So I mean, what kind of technologies might there might come into existence over the next fifty years, including carbon capture that actually is cheap and reliable and scalable? It might happen. Uh, yeah. So well, so so why why uh, do a sort of central planning approach to the transition? Why not just put on a carbon tax, have the 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 market signal the incentives, and let markets deal with whichever technologies will be the the, the most efficient to achieve the goal? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of a carbon tax is, is one I've supported for you know, forever. Um, and if you if you take a look at the, the economics, um, it's very hard to envision you know, deep decarbonization of the global economy without a carbon tax. Because if, let's say, we, we were successful in relying less on fossil fuels, there'll be less demand for them. If there's less demand for them, then their price will collapse and they'll be a lot more yes. appealing to use. So, yeah, carbon price makes sense. In the in the short term, in the immediate term, um, carbon price is not going to happen. So it's it, you know I can put it in an integrated assessment model and see what effects it would have on emissions. Um, that is not does not appear to be politically. But do you think a phase out of coal is politically possible? I mean, look look what's happening in Germany now. <laughs> in in Denmark, we're oh, we're starting right. to use coal again because we need it right now. Right. So so the question of a of a phase out of coal. Um, is ultimately going to be a political question modulated by technology availability. Um, there are, I mean, in the United States, coal has been phased out without a commitment to phase out coal, largely because of cheap natural gas. Exactly. Uh, and to some degree, uh, renewables coming online. So But I'd say point- that's where we need the focus to be. We need we need to to make sure that we have uh, cheap and reliable alternatives to coal right. so that they will replace coal sort of by itself. Yeah, and that's what's yeah. happened in, in in the U.S. with uh, fracking and and uh, gas. Yeah, well, one thing I I've, I've come to learn is, is nothing in the energy space happens by itself. Um, <laughs> okay, everything needs a push or a pull. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's very, very, very regulated the uh, market. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So but, I'm, I mean, I'm being, me, once, you're saying I'm being a little bit naive there. Well, I mean, for for me, one sign of of, of deep seriousness by policymakers. Um, is to start moving away from temperature targets, away from end of tailpipe emissions targets, to actually talking about infrastructure and phasing out fossil fuels. And and if if they're not at that point, and I know this was raised at COP 27, um, if they're not at that point, they're not quite serious about this whole net zero. But, but don't you agree with Xi Jinping really? Uh, I mean, on this specific issue, I, I don't agree with that man on on, on many things. Right, but, right. but isn't he right that uh, it is uh, it, it it is reckless to to phase out coal before you have a, a cheap, reliable alternative? I think um, this would have been a very difficult argument to make um, a year ago. Um, but I think, you know, particularly, you know, the, the reliance of Germany and much of Europe on Russian gas um, as a backstop while they were shutting down nuclear um, and, you know, talking about phasing out coal turns out to have led to huge security implications. Yeah. So, so I mean, we have to pick, you know, do you want low costs? Do you want, um, do you want high energy security? And do you want Um, low or no carbon, um, and a lot of times we only focus on one or two of those instead of all of them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I, I guess uh, uh, stability comes with the price, uh, so 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 they're all they're interconnected in that way. Right, right. Uh, sometimes, at least. So so that's that's one of the problems with wind and solar. You know, when you say it's very cheap, yes, to produce, but it's expensive to consume because. Uh, in order to get it to people when they need it, you need some kind of uh, storage uh, ability, and that's very, very expensive to develop. And yeah, y- y- I mean, there's a lot of technologies that we can we can discuss that would make the transition a lot easier. Which for me is it's frustrating because governments 
um, around the world have not supported investments in energy technology innovation like mm -hmm. they do on military hardware or pharmaceutical drug development. Um, energy still remains, um, uh, I, I think, a neglected area of, of, of innovation. Yeah, I agree with that. Do you want to talk a little bit about sports organizations? You bet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, because sure. I mean, I've um, FIFA, Qatar. What's your take on all that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I first started writing about FIFA. Um, I think the day after the the Times in London exposed two members of the FIFA executive committee willing to sell their votes for cash. Um, the the Qatar. Uh, World Cup, it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm a big sports fan and a big football fan, but it's very difficult to balance out the, you know, where FIFA has taken the game. Um, and, you know, sports organizations are, are strange things that they, yeah. they're, they're in their own world of governance. And so they don't have a lot of accountability. So the Qatar World Cup is kind of the culmination of a lot of things in the sports world that are, you know, coming into public view. But it's a private um association i mean isn't it? it it is and it isn't it's it has characteristics of a of a governmental body it has um you know set bladder when he was the head of fifa said i'm the i'm i'm more important than a head of state i'm the only person i'm the only person in the world who can show up in any country and be received he could show up in the united states israel Iran, Russia, and with a hero's welcome. Um, they also have characteristics <laughs> of a business, right? It's not big business. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, you know, small compared to, you know, Apple or something like that. But, um, and but it's the also fact that it's an important association, th does that make it more of a government? Why are you saying it's more like, uh, it's, in some ways, it's like a government? It, it's, it has, it's the fact uh, that it's, I mean, you, you could argue that Bill Gates is important. He, he's not a government. Right. Uh, FIFA, FIFA has status uh, due to its um, its location in Switzerland as a nonprofit, such that um, it it has very little accountability to to laws. So, um, if you took the the Danish government has has no accountability to Swiss law or to U.S. law, it has an I independent know. status. Um, FIFA sits outside. Um, a lot of the mechanisms of accountability. Okay, um, so it's, like, it's a bit like the Vatican or something like that. Uh, we would call that sovereign immunity. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a lot like the Vatican. Mm. What what could be done about that? Um, one would be to make it into a proper business, and uh, it could be like Nike or uh, mm. Adidas, and be incorporated and have shareholders and issue stock and be accountable to. Um, to to norms of governance that businesses have to follow um, in their practices, um, it could be made a, an agency of the United Nations. So it could be like WHO or the World Meteorological Organization. Would that um, be good? Well, well, I, what do you I think? I think any of those models are preferable to the current approach. Um, okay. I think the business model is is. I mean, FIFA could have a charitable side and it could have a business side. Um, it, right now, it has the worst of all possible governance models all mixed up into this hybrid organization. Okay. But if you so, want to hold FIFA accountable, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, of course, that change will be hard to make. So uh, would the way to get about that be to abandon FIFA and start something else? Is that possible? Or, or how, how would you go about doing that? Yeah, I think, I mean, you could, you could change FIFA into FIFA Incorporated. And so, you know, there, there, there are plenty of Swiss companies. It could be like Nestle. Yeah, but um, how, how would you get that done? How, how would you get FIFA to agree with that? I mean, there's, there, there are people now running it that uh, have a majority of countries sort of liking the way it is now. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so this is, so this is exactly the problem is that, uh, it, I mean, you've identified you can't get FIFA to do that because, no. because FIFA is largely unaccountable. Yeah. So, I mean, the Swiss government, which has a very light touch, um, could do that. Um, a competitor to FIFA could be um, could be created. I mean, the 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 Danish FA recently said that they might look to to leave FIFA. So, yeah. if there was a a a movement, um, and I and I do think um, you know UEFA, the European Soccer Federation, um, if there were a sufficient number of of nations and their FAs that decided to abandon FIFA, you might see change. But like you say, it's it's there's kind of a lock-in there. So yeah. um it's it's an extremely difficult problem because sport is important. Everybody watches it, everybody cares about it, but it's not that important. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's yeah, it's it's sort of very, very important in one sense. Some people um you know, I mean, there's a lot of identification, people, strong feelings, and all. But in another sense, it's not. Yeah, uh, it's 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 in that in that way, it's very interesting. You know, Denmark winning the European Championship in '92. Everybody who was uh, alive and can remember that is, you know, it's it was a big event. Right. We, we still right. we remember the goals. We remember the games in details. <laughs> Even right. I do. I'm I'm not a, a football fan as I, I watch the games whenever my daughter's watching them. Right, right. Otherwise, I don't. If we get to the final, I'll probably watch that. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's 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 really important, and then it's not important. Yeah, and, and I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo. He was being interviewed some years ago at the at the height of the FIFA scandal, and um, he was asked, you know, about FIFA and its governance, and and he let out some some cuss words and threw his earphone off and left the studio. Um, people care about football. Nobody cares about football governance, right? They they want yeah. the they want to watch the games on TV, and um, you know, they probably don't want to be stuck in a shipping container in the Qatar desert with no beer. Um, no. And so maybe that'll be something that, that wakes up fans yeah. to, to FIFA. So, but yeah, okay. The way Qatar got it is problematic because of the corruption and all that. But um, I don't have a strong view of this, but I've been thinking about it and it is called a world championship. So why are we saying that a country like Qatar shouldn't get it i i i i get that you know they didn't have the state it's it's a weird peak in that sense but um another country that has uh, similar values to what they have in qatar where they don't agree with things that we find natural and good uh, that that individuals have uh, should have freedom to choose their sexual orientation and all that. They don't agree with that. They have different values. But if we call it a world championship, shouldn't we be accommodate? I mean, if, if we held the world championships in Denmark, 
And Qatar came and said, well, uh, we think that alcohol should be banned because that's not part of our culture. And we think that the women in Copenhagen, while we're here, should be wearing uh, a scarf. We'd be saying, you must be completely out of your head. Uh, still, this is kind of what we're doing when we go to Qatar. Do, do, yeah. do you get I mean, what I'm saying? I, yeah, I get that. But it, I think it's very hard. I mean, this goes for the Olympics and also with FIFA to separate out the process from the outcome. Right. So, so yes, the process was corrupt. Um, and there was no discussion ahead of time of, um, you know, what are the criteria for an appropriate venue um, to, to host the Olympics? I mean, if you think, you know, the last, last few World Cups, I mean, Russia, Qatar, um, they're in places that um, the, the sports community, the global community has to decide whether um, a reward of having, you know, the global's most important sport hosted in their country um, is the right message to be sending. It's ultimately a political decision. I, you know, as you say, as a world championship, in principle, it should be able to go everywhere there's a football federation. Yeah. Um, Qatar has an FA, and if they're allowed in the group, then they should be eligible to host, um, which certainly, you know, would make sense. At the same time, thinking about how that process went forward and then, um, you know, the issues re regarding labor and the building of the stadiums. Sure. Um, it raises an awful lot of questions again about accountability of, of FIFA to you know broader patterns of global norms and, and laws and expectations. I agree. The labor issue, the way they got it, the the, the uh, labor issues, the people who died, terrible. You know that's right. that raises a lot of concerns. But I think the recent debate about uh, should men be able to hold hands in Qatar when you, hmm, I don't know. It's, um, I'm also thinking maybe you have thoughts about this. If we want to, to, to use this to sort of press for liberal democracy type of values, mm -hmm. are, are we picking the right ones? Uh, you know, shouldn't we be talking about the things that we know that also people in Qatar with their culture and their values would, would, would agree with say, okay, freedom of expression, uh, uh, freedom of speech, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, it, it, the the right to have political opinions without being harassed, et cetera, all, all those types of things. In, instead of, uh, you know, moving way to the top of the sort of mass lobby right, and yeah. hierarchy of needs uh, when it comes to right. human rights. Uh, what yeah, are your thoughts think, on that? Yeah, I mean, so this is, I mean, there are the two sides of the debate about, you know, major sporting events as 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 a reward or as a as a way to compel um, countries to adopt, you know, certain values in exchange for hosting the event. Um, and it provides, you know, kind of a, a, a carrot versus stick approach. Um, I, I can see that argument. And this would have been a wonderful debate and discussion to have ahead of site selection. Um, but the problem is we only have that discussion in the aftermath of, of these decisions. So the decision to go to Russia, um, I think you could say probably did not, did not, uh, did not result in Vladimir Putin becoming a better global citizen. Right. So, so there there are pluses and minuses to to how sporting organizations choose where they go we see the same debate in the united states with you know do does the ncaa which does college sports does it go to certain states 
that have certain policies. Um, it's an important debate and a discussion to have. We just don't have it in in the international sports world because the decisions are made in behind closed doors um, and often with the exchange of money. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't you don't want to go into um, to the extent that we have the debate now if we're picking the right issues. That's that's I, what I was asking you about. Yeah, yeah. I would so going forward. Um, I mean that opening up the 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 process. Um, I mean, one proposal that's been put out there for you know the Olympics um, or for FIFA is to identify you know pick your number seven, nine, ten regions of the world and just rotate around yeah. so that there's not this decision. Um, and if that's coupled with um, helping countries build infrastructure, or as was the case in London 2012, building entirely new infrastructure that was repurposed afterwards, that could certainly be part of the of the criteria for, for site selection. Yeah. Um, you know, Los Angeles is going to host the Olympics and they have great facilities and it will probably be um, urban redevelopment there. Um, but if you go to Brazil and look at their soccer stadiums from when they held the World Cup, um, many of them are empty and in disrepair. So, so there are important questions to ask a, a ahead of time. What, what, a, what other issues are you uh, interested in concerning sports and uh, and governance of sports? Yeah, the big one I'm, I'm I've been working on now is gender regulation in sport. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's and it's one that that um, combines matters of science, of values, um, of law, of regulation. And the reality is it's quite messy. Um, and it, anyone who says that there are simple solutions um, probably probably doesn't understand the issue. Um, okay, good. I, I would say the simple solution would be to, 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 to say that uh, you have to be a biological uh, woman to... Uh, to participate in in the women's games because that's a protection of the physically weaker sex. That would that's be a simple the, solution. What what's wrong yeah. with that? Um, well, it's contrary to laws in many places like Denmark. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, good point. Well, in yeah, which way is it contrary? Uh, the the outright banning of an individual based on their biology or physical characteristics from participation in an event for which they are legally qualified. Um, so so in in many places, when an individual um, changes gender legally, um, it's on their you know their passport, their driver's license, their even their birth certificate can be changed. So what you would have to do to implement that is is to come up with a new type of identification of individuals in addition to the ones that we have. Um, and so that type of proposal actually, instead of having men and women, creates four categories. You have biological men, biological women, non-biological men, non-biological women, and then you have to regulate four categories. And um, the governments of Denmark, Netherlands, Norway, United States, and elsewhere, um, don't regulate human beings like that. So, mm. so that strategy fails um, in in a lot of practical ways. Um, existing laws and regulations. Wow. 
So it, I can it, see the problem. So if if legally you have changed gender, then how would the organizers know that you're not biologically that right. gender? That that's the point. Right. Then I mean we have proposals that are out there from some sports organizations which say, well, we need to, to create a new battery of tests for all women to make sure that they're quote unquote real women um, right. identified by chromosomes. And sports organizations did that for decades um, and failed miserably um, and caused a lot of human suffering. And really, how, how is that? How can you fail in that? It must be fairly easy to detect if you have a, a Y chromosome or not. Well, it turns out that human biology is complicated and there are XY women and XX men and other combinations of chromosomes. Um, it's not particularly common conditions, but they're, they're out there. Mm. And um, so, for example, in, in Atlanta, uh, the Olympics, um, they did uh, chromosome testing. And uh, I think something like eight women failed the chromosome test. Um, right. But they were all allowed to compete because they were judged to be, be women. Okay. So um, if, if the world was so simple <laughs> um, and biology wasn't complicated, simple approaches would work, but the, mm. the world is complicated. Both human biology is complicated, but also regulation and policy yeah. is complicated. I guess if you go on an airplane, uh, you have to go through a metal detector. And uh, uh, if if you're caught in the detector, uh, you won't be allowed to go through, except if you have a hip replacement or, or something. Uh, and then you have a note from the doctor saying, explaining that that's the case, mm -hmm. and then you're lit through anyway. So you need some kind of arrangement like that for for for, for these for these few cases where where the, the uh, chromosome test is, is not correct. Yeah. So you, I mean, so, so what, why is that a big problem? Well, you're proposing a, an entirely new regulatory regime that 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 may or may not be consistent with the, uh, you know in Denmark's laws for sure. Um, but with U.S. laws and, and others as well, you, you, mm. you I mean, it, let's say uh, you wanted, let's talk about an airplane. Let's say you wanted to fly somewhere and someone said, well, I'm sorry, you have X, Y chromosomes. You can't come on my airplane. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right? That yeah. would be, that would be an illegal form of discrimination. Yes. So, yeah. um, so sport often thinks, well, we, we're different. We play by our own rules. We don't have to follow society's rules. Um, but gaining entry to a competition legally um, may be no different than gaining entry to an airplane. Right. And, so, and, and to, to many people, it's your livelihood. It's your, it's your job. It's your profession. So it's, uh, um, it's having right to exercise your, your, your profession in, in some sense. Yeah, and, then so, I mean, and then suddenly it gets complicated because there's a com commercialization of sports. There's that, that aspect to it as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it, it's also complicated because if you take a sport like archery um, and you compare that to, to judo. Mm. So the differences between men and women in archery are very small. And in judo, they're much larger. And so the the regulations you would have for inclusion for archery would necessarily be different than you have for for judo. Um, yeah. it, and you know, there's there are technical terms like like unfair advantage. Um, how do you know it when you see it? What does it mean? 
Um, mm. Can unfair advantage be mitigated um, either through testosterone suppression or other means? So there are some empirical questions, um, but the, uh, the reality is that sport over you know, the modern Olympics over more than 100 years has, has progressively become more inclusive. Mm. Um, first women were excluded, black athletes were excluded, um, amputees were excluded. So um, the idea that there is a, a class of human beings that by virtue of their um, some physical characteristic have to be banned probably doesn't work legally, regulatory. Um, were amputees excluded? I mean, if wasn't it just the case that it would be very hard to... Uh, I, I mean, there, there are ways that you qualify. You, you exactly. enter a competition and... Uh, an amputee would have would find a hard time um, managing to to get through that that process. But, but, but were they, they but were they excluded? Yes. Uh, in in which way? So, so the, the 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 regulations. Um, so Oscar Pistorius. From South oh, Africa. I see. Yeah. Okay. If so, if if, if they're runners and they they're yeah. using these uh, enhancement. Oh, yeah, or, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I, I, yeah. I remember yeah. that problem. Yeah. So they have yeah. they have opportunities for inclusion. Yeah. You, if 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 the world said, well, we're going to pass a law that says anyone who's an amputee is forbidden from competing, um, that wouldn't work. That would mm. be illegal. So I think it's the same sort of thing um, based on chromosomes. Yeah. Uh, and, to, and how has how how does the sports deal with uh, you know what if I turned up uh, and and use some kind of enhancement? I'm not an amputee, but you know. Why, sh if amputees can use an enhancement, why shouldn't I be allowed to use an enhancement? Yeah, so amputees are evaluated um, individually um, to assess whether they have an unfair advantage. So, so the oh, point uh. of running on the cheetah blades is to give them uh, a re return their capabilities to that of an able-bodied right. person. Yeah. And so, there are tests that are done: how fast do they come out of the blocks? How fast do they go around the curves? How fast on the straightaways? Um, how much energy is returned. So it gets to be a fairly complicated process. Um, and there are guidelines. So a, a, a sprinter from Los Angeles named Blake Leeper wanted to run in um, in Tokyo and was told, no, you can't. You're, you have an unfair advantage. Um, so just creating the possibility for inclusion doesn't necessarily mean everyone is included, no. but it does give a, a, a viable route to inclusion. And and so who makes that decision? So that decision uh, was made by um, World Athletics. And then uh, Blake Lieber challenged that in the court of arbitration for sport and lost his, his challenge. What finances that court? How, how, it's, it's not a it's not a government court. It's a, it's a civil court, right? It, it's not even that. It's an arbitration body that's uh, under under the, the Olympics. Um, and so it's it's, a, okay. it's part of this nether world of sports governance that sits, sits outside of normal legal. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't know any of that. Yeah, um, it's really interesting. And and the people, the the judges, are they are they lawyers that have specialized are, in sports law? Yeah, they're, they're is that such a thing? Yeah, there's primary. They're primarily lawyers. Some of them emphasize sports law. Not all of them. There's about six hundred of them. Um, who are on the panel, but regularly, you know, much less than that, less than a hundred are the arbitrators. They're mostly in Europe and North America. Wow. And um, 
they're mostly white men. Um, and so there are some real questions about the independence and the, um, the integrity of that, that particular arbitration system. Yeah. Okay. And uh, there is no, is, is there a way that you can move for, uh, uh, for so uh, you can challenge it and, and what, what, where do you go to then? And yeah, after so that, that, yeah, can, so sports, can, can you enter the the uh, uh, the sort of traditional legal system at some point? Is that possible? Very difficult. So it's incorporated. Okay. The, the The Court of Arbitration for Sport is incorporated in Switzerland, and the Swiss government gives very strong powers to arbitration bodies. Um, arbitration bodies cannot violate Swiss law, um, so it's a very high threshold. There have been a few cases overturned very few, um, you know, a handful out of thousands. Uh, but um, it's it's a deeply unsatisfactory method of jurisprudence. Let's just say yeah, that. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's, How did you get really, into that? Um, I did some research um, focused on uh, the regulations. Uh, you recall Castor Semenya, runner from South Africa. Um, we found some some gross scientific errors in the research that was done to ban her, um, and I became an expert witness in her case. Oh. Um, and so I got to participate in a trial at the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which, um, in addition to you know my scholarly research, gave me quite a quite a view of how it works from the inside. Okay, but how did you get to look into her data? Uh, in the first place yeah um, um, there, I, there, there, there you are studying hurricanes and suddenly you you come across <laughs> i know that's i know you are working on different issues but but tell me how yeah, you yeah. got into this um it, well i mean it started a long time ago when i was looking for new topics for my my graduate seminar on where science meets policy and i wanted a topic where students didn't have preconceptions so issues of um you know running on cheetah blades or gender regulation in sport, most people haven't thought about. So for me, it was a fresh, fresh topic to engage students. And if you're going to teach something, you should probably know a little bit about it. So <laughs> I, I started researching it, and you know, one thing led to another, and written you know a series of papers on gender regulation in sport. Great. Wow, that was fascinating. I um, I did not expect this conversation to end this way, <laughs> uh, but I'm happy it did. Um, Roger Pilke Jr. Thank you very much for taking part in my podcast. This was the Copenhagen Liberty Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we would appreciate an honest review in your podcast app to help others find the show. Thank you for listening.